welcome to a new podcast where we're breaking through and breaking it down with a new girl, your host, Dawn Piercy. Welcome to Big Dog's Corner of a new podcast. My name is Dawn Piercy. I am your host with co-host... Mariano Big Dog. Yes, and today we are bringing you a very special guest, Dutch Bradley. He's a highly motivated life coach and speaker who impacts and develops individuals to be strong leaders. And uh, he's also one of the founders of 220 Life, L-I-F-E, and uh, Dutch Bradley Apparel and Extreme Life Incorporated, as well as being an ambassador for I Am Second. Dutch, welcome to Big Dog's Corner of a new podcast. How are you doing? Can you hear us? It's breaking down a little bit. Oh, did it? Did Frozen. it? Now, you know, the, the, the social media is not... Yeah, yeah, you froze for a couple of minutes. <laughs> a minute. <laughs> It's good now. I, I thought he was just being very still. <laughs> well, it's it's great to have you on as a, a guest, Dutch. Um, and, and now, I know that yesterday I tuned into your story on the TBN Trinity Broadcasting Network and was very touched by it. And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to tell the audience right now, I was bawling, okay? It had me, it just really touched home with me. So I'm going to have Dutch share with you um, what he has been through, where he is now, and and what he can do for you. Dutch, I'm going to give it to you. Well, I cannot start off without first saying thank you to the big dog, Mario (laughs) <laughs> I am uh, completely humbled at the invitation. And Dawn, thank you for hosting uh, two guys like Mariano and myself. We, uh, we are cut from the same cloth. We're cut from the same fabric. And uh, we are guys that will fight to defend the weak. We will fight to defend the poor. Uh, you do not get in a fight with us because if you do, we guarantee you we're on the right side of the fight. So uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for letting me uh, be part of your show. So thank you very much. <clears throat> my, uh, man, my story, you, you'd have to go back to, you know, childhood. I've never met my real father. So uh, that really is the core and the gist of everything uh, from the time that I was a little guy up until today. It still is a factor in my life that really affects me deeply. It's not something that has gone away with time, it's not something that's gone away with experience. There is a reason why the creator created family to have a father in the family. Nobody can replace that that person just like nobody can replace the mother uh, inside of a family. And so when you grow up never having met your father, you're never able to get the affirmation of a man, especially as a young boy, mm-hmm. but young girls as well. You don't get the affirmation and when you don't get the affirmation from people that are giving it to you in your own home, who are your primary role models, you're going to get that affirmation somewhere else. You're going to look for it. You're going to hunger for it. You're going to gravitate to it. And oftentimes affirmation doesn't come from people who are good for you. Right. 
And so I found myself, I found myself, right, Mariano? I found myself uh, being a very good athlete growing up, and that was saving grace for me. It helped me deal with a lot of my contention. It helped me deal with a lot of my anger, uh, my confrontational style, very aggressive, A-type uh, a personality. You know, we, we got the dog in us. And uh, so the athletics was something that with all of the pain that I had gathered inside where I didn't get the affirmation from my real father, I was looking for it from my mother's husband when she married him and he became my stepfather. So this is kind of where the pain began to come because I'd never met my real father. I'm being raised by a stepfather and my expectations of him are greater than what he knows or understands, right? If we, we didn't have them uh, scribed out, we didn't have a list of things that he would do for me and I would do for him. Uh, I was just assuming that he was going to take on the father role and he didn't. And the, the thing that I remember <clears throat> the most, he was a great provider. Mm-hmm. And he was a man that had lost his father to cancer when he was a very, very young boy. And it's important that I share this so that you can understand where my story goes. He couldn't father me because he had never been fathered himself. And wow. the expectations of him were far greater, but he had had no one show him how to do it. And so it's really it's unfair, right, to put somebody in that position uh, without really uh, them having had the experience themselves. So with that said, uh, my stepfather was a an alcoholic. He was a womanaholic and he was a uh, military veteran. And he spent all of his time at the VFW where we as his children would laugh because we would have to drop him off and pick him up because he would get so totally intoxicated uh, that his words were slurred. He'd fall asleep in the car on the way home. And he was just a complete alcoholic who was pretty much having rendezvous every time that we would take him there with other women. So, you know, my mother's at home. I'm a mama's boy. And when we're kind of discovering this type of character flaw within him, it's embarrassing for us, right? Yeah. This is this is our father figure who's... Uh, Via the VFW, he's a commander in chief at the VFW, so he's highly regarded in that setting. He's in the newspapers, he's doing all the funerals, he's you know, he's doing the interviews for the newspapers. But for us as children at home, we know that his character is terribly flawed because we're the ones that are picking him up and see all these things about him. Well, this is deeply impacting me because my mother is my savior. I love my mom and, you know, I'm going to go to bat for my mom at any time. You got a tiger in your uh, video screen as well, I see. (laughs) (laughs) So the the, the point of all of this is that uh, we as the sons could laugh and make fun of him. Mm -hmm. But I, I remember that there was a booster for the sports teams who knew my dad. And he had made a comment that was a sideways comment about my dad. And I was ready to take this guy's head off because we were allowed to make fun of him, but nobody else is allowed to make fun of him. There's still this protection 
mechanism of tribe, of family. Uh, we are a community of people that we know we're flawed, but don't mess with any one of us because we will pack together and get you. And so I, I think that that's very interesting because we see this today with the absence of fathers in their homes today with children, children growing up with, in many cases, an animosity because dad isn't there. Mm-hmm. But they are the first ones to rise up and defend that dad if someone outside of the tribe tries to talk about that dad. And I think it's important because I think that that's innate. I think that God has put that within the family structure that no matter what happens outside of the family, you protect your own at all costs. So for me, I would go to my football games and uh, I would hear my name being chanted from the crowd because I was a a good athlete. I would go to the basketball games. And before I could start a game, Mariano, I had to look up in the stands to see if my mother was there. I I couldn't play the game without knowing that my mother was there in the crowd watching because that was my sense of security. That was my security blanket. But the thing that I really remember is my mother would be there and my stepdad never would be. He would come home, get dressed, and he would go to the VFW where he would get intoxicated and cheat on my mother with other women. So this this is the framework that I grew up with. So for us, I grew up in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And so our understanding was that you would be married and you would provide for your children, but you always had other women that you saw on the side. That was our understanding of what family was. Now, it was the family secret. Nobody talked about it, but we all understood it. So that was what, for me, started a very womanizing mentality. So now where I see my father cheating on my mother, even though I despise him for it, it's the very thing that I start to do with my own life, being unfaithful in relationships, which would which would really derail me in many cases because I had young girls that really cared about me and in some senses you may say loved me, puppy love anyway, um, but I would find myself sabotaging relationships because I was afraid of commitment. Mm-hmm. Now, why am I afraid of commitment? Well, because my real father, I've never met him. He didn't have any commitment. My stepdad wouldn't even come to my games. He would go get drunk and have rendezvous with other women. So he had no commitment. So now here I am carrying on this generational curse of not being committed to anything in my life that didn't please satisfy or feed my need as a narcissist, right? It completely built the narcissism within us. Well, long story short, I get to my uh, junior year of high school, mother and father, stepfather, they divorced, which I'm relieved as a result of. I end up switching and going to a larger high school that had a better sports program. As a result of that, the former high school contested it, took me to the state court, defying that I'd be able to play at the other school, and I lost my eligibility to play sports. Now, why is this important? It's my senior year. The only thing that I have that I identify with in a positive way is my athleticism. And the men from my former school who were my principal, my basketball coach, and my vice principal were the only three men that modeled any type of leadership for me at that school. And now they're challenging or contesting me leaving 
which causes me to lose eligibility to play sports my senior year of high school. I feel completely abandoned by every man that played a role in my life. And this is all by the age of 16, 17 years old. And so as a result of that, now I don't any longer trust any men. Truth be told, I don't trust anybody. So now this disrupts me being able to go to college to play sports. So I end up moving. And when I move, I get involved in the drug game. This is the Northeast. Uh, crack cocaine had hit the streets really hard. Now you have to understand I'm an athlete, so I'm not a user. I'm not using cocaine. I'm not a user of marijuana. I'm not somebody who's smoking crack. But man, I'm a businessman now. And I get involved in selling uh cocaine powder and I get involved in selling slabs of crack cocaine and I get involved in selling uh, mescaline, anything that would generate a profit or that there was a nice margin, I would get involved in doing it. Well, in the midst of that, my girlfriend, who's on and off my girlfriend, uh, she gets pregnant with our son and I want to run from the responsibility. I really wanted to abort my little baby. Why do I want to abort my son? Because that's what every man, as far as I'm concerned, has done to me over and over and over. They have aborted my dreams. They have aborted my support. They have aborted my destiny. Um, and so there's all these broken relationships. And now I want to abort my son. My girlfriend, though, refuses. She has my little boy. So grateful that she did. Thank God that she had my little boy, because when he was born, I was there and I made him a promise. I said, son, I'm not going to do what my dad did to me. I love you. <laughs> you are the most incredible thing that has ever happened in my life. And you're going to grow up knowing your daddy. I'm going to kiss you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to affirm you. Everything that I wished my father would have done for me, I'm going to do it double for you. The problem that my little boy is just a baby. I'm running cocaine from New York City to Atlanta, and I end up getting jammed up in two different states within three months. And now I've got a stack of charges leading to 38 years in prison. And the only thing that I could think about when I was in the jail cell on that third arrest was I've got to make it home and let my son no, I'm sorry for disappointing him. I'm sorry for letting him down and let him know how much I love him. Now, he's only a year and a half old. He, he can't register everything that's happening in my life. But it was so important for me. Why? Because generationally, what I'm now doing to my son is the very thing that my father and father figures have done to me. And something had to change. And that's why from the floor of a prison, I, I get into a fist fight with another inmate. And as a result of the fist fight, they send him to lock up. They ask me if I want to go to church. I said, go to church. I mean, I just got done fighting somebody. Go to church. <laughs> and I said, man, I don't want to go to no bleeping church. And I turned around to walk away. And they said, well, pack your bags. You're going to lock up. I said, hold the door. I want to go to church. I want to go to church. Because I didn't want to go to church. And uh, I'm sitting on the floor of the prison and a guy comes in from the outside. He reaches through the prison bars with a small brown book. You guys may have heard of it. It's a Gideon Bible. 
Oh, and yeah. I didn't want to read it. I wasn't a reader. I had no interest in the Bible. But then he said eight words to me that impacted my life so deeply. He said, you look burdened. Can I pray for you? Now, I want you to put this in perspective with me. Every man in my life has made me perform so that I could feel I had value and that I was loved. From my real father to my stepfather to my coaches, I had to perform for them in order to feel some sense of value and love. And here I am at the rock bottom of my life. I have <laughs> nothing to offer. I can't make the layup. I can't shoot the jump shot. I can't score the touchdown. And a man who I despise men, who has never seen me before, jumped off of quoting me scriptures and looked at me and said something that made me feel like he cared about what I was going through. And I tell people this all the time. Stop trying to quote scriptures or stop trying to preach to people what they should and should not do and start making them feel like they have value and you care. Because if I feel like you care about me, I'm more likely to listen to what it is you're telling me I should do. And this is where men miss it in the family. This is where men miss it in, in the sense of marriage. They don't feel the value. Uh, from their wife. They don't feel the value from their children. Always remember this. When Adam and Eve were questioned in the Garden of Eden, God didn't ask Eve, where are you? He asked Adam. Because Eve was supposed to be wherever Adam was. And Adam had let her out of sight. This is the importance for us as men the value of family and husbands and daddies being there for our children. This is the thing that I'm most passionate about. This is the thing that I want my life when I am dead and gone. I want it to be the mantra for my life. What did Dutch care about? Dutch cared about daddies returning to their little boys and little girls being the best father they can be, the best husband they can be, and being devoted and committed, even though we're not perfect, we're going to do the best with what we've got. And that's where my passion comes from. And that's the reason why I'm so passionate about reaching men in today's generation, like the big dog, Mariano. <laughs> well, I hope that um, for our audience, if, you know, if, if you're a single mom of any boys... And with absentee fathers, it's truly something not easy to go through. I know firsthand, as my son's father was deported when he was six months old to Mexico. And then I remarried and my husband died. So I have an angry little boy on my hands right now. And, um, and I hope that he hears this. I do. I do. And I hope that many fathers that are not with their children hear this because what you do makes a difference, mm -hmm. you know, um,
the deeds of the father fall upon the children. So think about that. You know, you don't want your children going through and suffering for what you're doing. It's time to grow up, you know? Now, God is good. Amen. Amen. And I'm so glad that you're yeah. here to share that story, Dutch. Um, can you re can you share with us how you received your name, Dutch Bradley? Yeah, so you're, 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 you're jumping ahead. Uh, you're jumping ahead of about a decade, but... Uh, that's okay that's okay I have, a, I, I have a series of miracles that take place while i'm in prison and all of them take place because a man took the time to share eight words with a young broken man who was angry with men and he penetrated my heart with truth um about a living god and about the spirit of god that can reach people anywhere i would always share with my little boy I said, son, no matter what part of the world I am in and what part of the world you're in, we can always reach one another with prayer because God can be where you are and where I am at the same time. And so that was a beautiful thing for me. Um, so when I got out of prison, I started working in churches, believe it or not, large churches. I was a, a very big, high impact profile person. Um, I became very disenchanted with that. I, I realized that the churches that I worked in did not care about the things that I cared about. I wanted to reach people like me. I wanted to reach people that uh, were fatherless and that were uh, in need of hearing uh, the story of hope through Christ. And my church was just having conferences and my church was just inviting believers and my church had no real hunger for reaching the lost. They just wanted people to attend their church. And so <clears throat> in that disenchantment, I ended up leaving I worked in New York City during 9-11, uh, became very disenchanted there because it was run by Christians. It was run by pastors. And my job was to interview those that had fallen as a result of 9-11. They had lost their homes. They had, in many cases, lost family members. They had lost the breadwinner of their home. They were losing their homes uh, as a result of what took place. And I would take down all of their information, and then I would have to share that information with the pastoral leadership. And while I was interviewing people that were in the moment desperate for things like toothpaste and toilet paper, I would take those requests to our leadership who would go on vacation for two weeks and tell me that they would address it when they got back. And again, wow. it's losing faith and hope in men in leadership. And I mean, these are true stories. I didn't make these things up. And so I became very disenchanted because I knew that we had over a million dollars in a coffer that was donated by a foundation to help people that were going through this. And yet leadership was making decisions not to address it immediately, but put it on hold until they returned from vacation. And I was just like, this, this is not what I signed up for, Lord. Like, this is not the God that saved me wow. in a prison cell. And so I left and I went to Miami, Florida because my brother and his wife had lived there. And I began looking for just a regular job, like, let me get out of ministry. Let me go, you know, let me go work someplace else. And no one would hire me because I'm a convicted felon. I've got drug trafficking charges. I've got gun charges. Now, it didn't matter that I, uh, I was in uh, prison uh, taking college courses. I had a 4.0 GPA. 
in college. I tested tested very well on everything for employment. They would send me out on jobs and then they'd recall me because it was discovered that I had felonies on my record until finally they said, uh, we're sorry, we can't help you find a job because we cannot hire people with felonies. So it's another hurdle now that I'm challenged with. And my, my older brother tells me, listen, man, I understand you're having trouble finding a job, but you better go do something to make some money. He said, go go down to Miami Beach and get a job at a nightclub. I said, man, you must be crazy. I said, I just worked the last four years in, in high-profile ministry, and you're telling me go get a job at a nightclub? And I sat there and thought about it. I said, I need to go get a job at a nightclub. And I ended up doing it. I felt very guilty about it. You know, I felt very guilty. Mariana, you probably understand what I'm talking about with the high profile jobs that you have. I felt a a sense of guilt, but but I needed to work. Long story short, I worked at uh, one of the nicest, best uh, nightclubs in Miami, met all the celebrities, got to shake hands and kiss babies with everybody. And it was incredible. But I remember one night Jennifer Lopez was coming and, um, oh, wow. and I approached her, her bodyguard at the time and I told him, hey, man, if you ever need anybody, just give me a call. And uh, he's like, yeah, OK, man, you know, put, put, the, put it in his pocket. And uh, it just so happened that that night she didn't show up at the club because that night the guy that she was dating was Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. He got caught cheating with a stripper in law. Vegas and she heard about it and was devastated by it and the next day she she's going to stay in Miami for the next 10 days to two weeks my phone rings that morning and it's the guy from the nightclub the night before and he says hey man can you be to Jennifer's house in an hour I said brother I'll be there in 30 minutes just send me the <laughs> Long story short, man, I, I pulled up. I started working at Jennifer Lopez's house. Uh, I was on all the all the local news and everything else because they thought that she was setting up to do a private wedding at her home there. And uh, long story short, for the next five years, I'm working for Jennifer Lopez, and she would meet and marry Mark Anthony. So I got to travel with her and Mark Anthony to Spain, to South America, to Central America. I got to fly on a private jet plane with them. You know, it was just really, really cool stuff. Why is it cool? It's cool because it wasn't that long ago that I was looking at 38 years in prison and a man shares the love of God with me and it changes my life and changes the course of direction of everything happening in my life. And so being able to become a bodyguard, interestingly enough, I ended up in L.A. I've got some skateboard buddies out there. Stephen Baldwin, who's an actor, uh, he was somebody that I had met. And um, wow. I had some guys that told me, hey, we're getting ready to go to the prison <clears throat> to share the gospel. I was like, what? I'm like, That's what I want to do. They said, well, sign up. I signed up. The first prison I spoke at was San Quentin in California. Okay. And I, I wow. walked into the yard at San Quentin, 3,000 orange jumpers out on, the, uh, out on the prison yard. And by the time I got done sharing my story, and I share my story in a very different way when I'm doing it in that open type of a forum, um, but I had I had grown men with shotgun blasts in their chests and bullet holes in their bodies and, and, and cut marks from knives along their faces coming up to me crying, crying, 
like babies. These big, hard, wow. angry men crying like babies because I had shared with them <laughs> something that they knew was true and they knew that I was sharing it from a place that was real. And I was giving them hope that they, if I could change my life, they can change their life too. Their wives will get their husbands back, their children mm -hmm. get their daddies back, and their mother and father will get their son back. And that's what they wanted. And so I did that for the next nine years. I've spoken in over 250 prisons. Wow. I took the long way to give you this answer, but here's the answer to your question. I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking at the Ohio Women's Reformatory. And there's probably about a thousand women out on the yard. And there's a, a young lady who gets up before me who plays the guitar and sings some amazing, incredible songs. And the crowd just mellows out. And then I get up and I start yelling like a madman. And I start uh, sharing my story of hope with them. And by the end of it, out of 700, uh, out of 700 women, about 695 of them responded to ask Jesus Christ to come into their life and into their heart. And Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. He changed me. Amen. I said to them, if you are really serious about making this decision, I, I don't want you playing church with me. If you're serious about this decision, I want you to come to me right now. 700 women rushed me at the front of this prison yard and all the guards are going crazy They're like oh my god you know security risk security risk <laughs> and i told all these women I said, everybody just reach up and put your hand on the person in front of you so i had all these hands on me everybody's touching one another and we prayed the most powerful prayer i mean i the, the spirit of god just fell on that prison yard everybody was crying everybody was crying and I walked away and it was this, you know, euphoric moment, this wonderful, amazing feeling where I just knew God had used my story to help some other people. And the girl that played the guitar as we're driving away on a golf cart says to me, um, you know, what you said was really powerful. And I said, what? She says, well, you told the women that your name was Dutch and that Dutch means mighty oak and that they would never have to worry about you using the mighty oak to hit them but that you would only use the mighty oak to defend them oh and it spoke to the heart of women who had been battered and abused I just got by chills. the men yeah in their lives and so as i pulled off she wow. said have you ever read isaiah 61 i said yeah i'm familiar with isaiah 61 jesus repeats it in luke 418 it says that the spirit of the Lord has come upon me and he has anointed me to set at liberty those who are captive, set free those who are in bondage and to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And she says, yeah, but have you ever read verse three? And I said, well, I don't recall off the top of my head. She says, well, verse three says, and these shall be called the mighty oaks of righteousness. Dutch nice. means mighty oak. Isaiah 6, <laughs> those that are redeemed shall become the mighty oaks of righteousness. We shall no longer fight for the wrong side, but we will always be defenders of the right side. And so that's where my name came from. That's why when people, you know, clown about the spelling of it or misuse it or whatever, I just, just <laughs> describe it. 
because <laughs> listen, when God gives you a name, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says. The Amen. Almighty <laughs> my name. Well, we only have a few moments left. Um, three minutes and 10 seconds. That's because Mariano's precise. doing all the talking. Uh, Mariano, do you have any questions before we wrap it up? And Dutch, where can our audience follow you to keep up with all that yeah. you've got going on? Social media, Dutch Bradley, spelled D-U-C-H-E Bradley. You can do that on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter. Okay. Now, for our audience, as you're aware, if you go to our platform on a anewpodcast.com, press Dutch's photo feature there, and it will take you to his bio page, and all the links have been provided for you. And there's a video for you to check out there as well. Now, if you like this episode, be sure to like, comment, and share so other people can enjoy it too. And if you feel fit to buy us a cup of coffee once a month for bringing you these episodes, you can do so on our anchor.fm platform under a new podcast. This is Dawn Piercy signing off. Mariano Big Dog Mendoza and Dutch Bradley. And Dutch, if you have one thing that you could say to the world, what would it be? Say that one more time. If you have one thing that you could say to the world, what would it be? Um, I would say I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Amen. Amen. Amen, brother. Yes. And until next time, keep it real.